And they said, uh, the guy running the meeting says, anything you want to say at the end of the meeting? And I said, I just can't stop drinking. It's probably the only honest thing I said in years. I just can't quit. And uh, they said, that's all right, you know, you're in the right spot. Welcome to the Recovery Edge cast. My name is Alfredo and I'm an alcoholic. And today I'm sitting here with Keith. Keith. Hi, Alfredo. Welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so I've known you for several years now, probably. And, Correct. Um, yeah. Yeah. And you were probably like, this guy's never going to get it, I'm sure. I was. For a while. <laughs> I did. I did. Well, you, <laughs> you did come and go. I did. You know? I did. Um, <laughs> but let's talk about you then. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> When's your sober date and uh, where's your home group? Okay. Uh, my sober date is October 1st, 1981. So... You got 39 years, seven months, uh, and a few days. You know, something like that. Yeah, who's counting? (laughs) Well, that's awesome. Yeah. Congrats on 39 and some years. Yeah, it's just a matter of perspective, I think. Yeah. When you think about, um, when you think about your sobriety after you've been sober that long, you know, it's like. Um, I think after about 20 years, you don't really think about the fact that it, the years keep piling on. You just, you just know that you're sober, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of strange in some ways. Do you have a home group these days? Oh yeah. Uh, so Tritown is my home, Tritown Thirst Quenchers and, you know, in, uh, Frederick. Is it Frederick? Yeah, that's Frederick. Yeah, I think it is Frederick now, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um. They're my own group, and they have been for about, oh, seven years now, I think, seven, eight years. Yeah? Since we've been in Florida, uh, um, Colorado, I mean, because uh, we moved here, nine, it's been nine years since we moved from the Seattle area. Okay, cool. <clears throat> um, so with that seven years... Has that meeting always been at that same location, your home group, or did it move? Um, no, they were there when I when I moved here. They were actually there. They were in a different location, um, mm-hmm. in town. Yeah, and uh, I think at one of the other churches. But actually, it was in a little house. Was it in a little house? Yeah, yeah. I made it there in my twenties once. Oh, so. In my 30s, when I looked for the meeting again, I went to that house. There was a couple of people, you know, that ran that meeting, too. And yeah. one of them's dead, and the other one's long gone, apparently. Because mm-hmm. when I took over as treasurer, um, I tried to find out who they were because I wanted to take the bank account and, and fix it. Mm-hmm. And to get access to it, you have to have somebody in the bank that has a signature on the account. And, mm-hmm. But anyway, that... That took a while to fix, and then I was able to get that fixed, and we've got our bank account straightened out finally. And you've been pretty busy in Alcoholics Anonymous for a long time with service positions. Is that true? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> GSR, um, you know, I, I was stupid enough to ask the question, do you have a GSR here at this meeting? <laughs> and they said, what's that? <laughs> mm. So... Uh, but there were a couple of people in the meeting that had longer term sobriety like me when I first came in. Mm-hmm. And then I found out that one of them really didn't have long term sobriety, um, that uh, this person had, you know, been picked up and charged wow. uh, a couple times. And then they were still coming to the meeting saying that they had mm-hmm. more than 20 years. Wow. So. And then, and then when they quit coming to the meeting, I think it kind of got out, and and then we tried to get them back in the meeting again, but yeah, they no never luck. came back. Yeah. yeah, and that's typical of what can happen in AA. You see people go out, mm-hmm. or or they lie about their sobriety, <clears throat> and it's not it's not something you want to see or hear, but it mm-hmm. happens. Yeah, in in here, you know, and then mm-hmm. I lied, you know. At, yeah. at first, I was I wouldn't raise my hand, 
even though I was in 30 days, I was just like, oh, you know, I, I well, you want to embellish your, on your sobriety, right? And you, and you're like, well, you know, when you first come in and everything, you want to fit in. And I think that, uh, you know, some of us, those half-truths yeah. are, are there. There's a lot of them, you know. And, uh, oh, yeah, I drank like this or I drank like that. Well, I really never drank like that, but I wanted you to see me in that light. Mm-hmm. Because if you see me that way, you'll accept me. Yeah. You know, and I think a lot of alcoholics think that way, too, when they first come in. And it's this rigorous honesty thing mm-hmm. is pretty tough. It is. It is tough. So I feel like you're warmed up. Um, <laughs> why don't you tell us what it was like before, what happened, and what it's like today? And, yeah, just give us your story. Okay. Um, so I'll go back on my family, right? Mm-hmm. I have a family with... <clears throat> I have three brothers and a sister. Um, I have a brother that's a year older than me, a year younger than me, and my my other brother is seven years younger than me, and my sister is ten years younger than me. And my dad was an alcoholic, um, and my mom was an enabler. Uh, You know, my dad would come home drunk, and my mom would be standing. We lived in a split-level house, and my, my dad would come in and he'd take the stairs to go up to the upstairs where the where the kitchen and the living room and the bedrooms were and my mom would be standing at the top of the stairs screaming at him bill you're drunk again you know and he would like literally crawl up the stairs how he even got home without killing somebody i have no idea but my dad was a bar drinker and he'd get off work and he'd go to the bar and he'd he'd drink beer with his buddies and shoot pool and my mom, over the years, she got a pool table and put it in the rec room in the basement to keep him from going out and drinking, but it never did really work. <clears throat> so anyway, that's kind of my family. And uh, my older brother's an alcoholic. My younger brother, just a year younger than me, is an alcoholic. Um, my younger brother, at seven years of me, is an alcoholic. And none of them are in recovery. They're still drinking, and uh, and they have definitely have problems. You know, my my brother that's a year older than me has been married twice. My brother that's a year younger than me has been married five times. Um, and my younger brother, seven years, he's been divorced. Uh, he never did remarry, but he's still drinking, so it's kind of tough. And then my sister who says she's not an alcoholic. And in some ways I have to give her credit for the fact that she's been able to control her drinking. But uh, I think she can get out of hand too. Um, Just that she's got a husband that protects her a little bit. So I come from a family of alcoholics, you know, and and my drinking started when I was in high school. And I just started drinking and, and I started drinking too. You know, when you first start drinking, you drink a case or two, maybe. <laughs> I don't know, you know, but that's where I started. I started drinking at a case at a time, you know, and, uh, because I had a good teacher, my dad, you know. I saw him drink a lot in the basement, and he just drank and drank and drank, you know. And, and I was that same person. I was that person who drank beer and got drunk. And that kind of went on for a few years, and... Uh, and then I was, then I got my first DWI at 25, and my first uh, ticket for pot, and then cocaine, and uh, let's see what else. Yeah, pretty much that. But you got to remember, I when I when I sobered up, or when I was drinking, that was in the 70s. I graduated from high school in 1971, and everybody back then, it was all uh, hippie and Vietnam War stuff, right? Um, The guys that were coming back from Vietnam War were, you know, guys that I graduated from high school with, and some of them didn't come back. And the other other part of that was the hippie movement, right, where your peace, love, and all this drugs, alcohol— 
sex um, was all free love and all that shit. And so people were taking, like me, um, were taking all these other drugs too. And it just wasn't, wasn't just alcohol, it was, you know, mescaline, LSD, mushrooms, um, amyl nitrate, cocaine, uh, heroin, snorting heroin stuff, you know, and, and that's the culture I grew up in. The high school that I went to in 1970, the senior class was raided by the, by the King County Police and uh, uh, Seattle King County Police, and they arrested 65 people in a heroin ring. Wow. Now, I graduated with 115 people in my class. So you got to figure that that class size was about 130 people. Mm -hmm. That means 50% of the people were hooked on heroin in the senior class in the high school I went to. Wow. So it was, that's the culture I grew up in, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I took mescaline, heroin, snorted heroin, LSD, take a trip, you know, every now and then, go to a concert, pop a pill, you know, get fucked up. Did anybody, or back then, was were you any different from your friends in like how you how hard you went, you know how hard you partied? Um. Well, <laughs> I was the guy who got so fucked up they couldn't wake up. You know, mm. <laughs> passed out basically, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, I was the guy that passed out. There weren't too many people like that in my class. There was maybe a couple. You know, a good friend of mine, actually, same way, you know, we'd get an eight ball and uh, we'd spend the weekend snorting coke and staying up and drinking. Mm. It's a good way to keep drinking, you know, get some coke, drink all weekend, stuff like that, you know, and, and uh, so that's the culture I grew up in. But my other friend, all my other friends I graduated with, that I went through high school with, they all got married. They all, you know, did their four years in college. Um, they had nice jobs. You know, they started a family. And I didn't because I kept going down the road of drinking, you know, drinking and drugs. I kept going. They went on with their lives. And so here it is, you know, a few years later. And I'd, I'd got a football scholarship and uh, went off to college underneath this football scholarship. And one of the guys I went with, I was a tight end uh, or a wide receiver at school and, and set a couple conference records and everything. And that's why I got recruited uh, to go to college. And, and uh, otherwise I would probably never would have never went. But here I am, I ended up in college and um, I ended up basically drinking and smoking my scholarship away and, and uh, and then quit school, probably, what was it, 20 credits short of uh, graduating. So I could probably go back and get my degree just one quarter. You got time, right? <laughs> yeah, I got time now, right? <laughs> 67 years old, and I, <laughs> I could go back. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't want to go back. No. I don't want to go back to work even, but anyway. Um, so you get the idea where the culture I came from. Mm -hmm. You know, and uh, a good example of my alcoholic family was my brother had five DWIs. I only wow. had two. So in comparison, I was doing okay for a while, right? Mm -hmm. Until the second DWI. And, uh, you know, I didn't have any more friends. I didn't have anybody to drink with anymore. I was a loner in the bars. And uh, I drank on my own. I was lit at the time, right Right before I quit, um, I was living with a guy, and he was pretty much the same as me, but only he was four years younger than me. And uh, he was snorting speed and cocaine, and then he was boiling it with uh, heroin or something, too. It had some name for it at the time. I can't remember what it was. But he was going off the deep end with it, and then he was starting to shoot it. And I just, like, I just couldn't see putting anything in my veins because my brother was a heroin addict. My older brother became a heroin addict. 
and I used to hide his spoon because he'd leave it in the bathroom downstairs. Um, and I would take all of his, his fit kit and I'd throw it in the garbage and he'd get pissed off at me. And I said, you don't need that shit, you know. But that's probably about the only drug that I didn't do was, you know, shoot heroin. I'd probably be dead if I did. Mm. Uh, so I ended up getting another, my second DWI and I was in, I got uh, put in jail and uh, this, this was 1981. No, it was 1981, the year that I sobered up. Uh, and I was going into jail every weekend for DWI and, and the, they were, they, uh, you were court ordered to go to these classes. They call it Alcoholics Awareness Class in Washington State. And then I think the fine was, the pay for the class was like 250 bucks, and then the fine that you got for driving drunk was a couple of thousand, you know, at the time, and, and then your insurance was shot. Back then they just canceled your insurance. They probably do the same thing now, but who knows. And then to get insurance, you had to have a deferment on your insurance or something, waiver, that you were sober. Mm. And they gave you back, gave you insurance. But anyway, I was going to these classes and uh, and then spending the weekends in jail because I was still working at the time. And uh, my boss called me in on a Friday and said, we're going to have to let you go. I said, well, I can understand, you know. Uh, and at the time he fired me, I was sober. I would just started going to AA. And I told him I understood exactly why he was firing me. You know, he can't trust me on the job. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was going to these classes. And I, they were passing out the book at the end of the class, you know. And uh, I s sat there until everybody left. There's probably 20 people in this class, you know. Probably one of 50 classes every week in the Seattle area because it's, Huge area, it's main people in that area at the time. So I waited till everybody left. I got the got the book and uh, I looked in that book because the guy says, if you want to go to AA, I got books up here, schedule. And I looked in that book and there was a meeting in there. It said, Tuesday night young people's meeting. And I was like 28 years old, you know. Mm -hmm. I'm a young person. <laughs> so... Uh, I didn't go right away. <laughs> I tried to quit. When I was going to those meetings, I was trying to quit. And uh, I'd go to jail on the weekends, I'd get out, and I'd get home, and I'd close the curtains and light up. <laughs> I wouldn't drink, but the minute I'd light up and, and smoke, I started drinking. So I knew just by doing that that if I was gonna smoke pot, I was gonna get drunk. Just another way to, it was like a gateway drug, really, for me, mm -hmm. into drinking. And uh, I knew I couldn't drink because I didn't wanna go get another DWI. I didn't wanna go to jail for six months. I was already doing weekends in jail for a couple months, and uh, I just didn't wanna go back. So I read that book, saw that young people's meeting, Tuesday night rolled around and I went. And uh, I sat in that meeting and they said, anybody, anybody got a birthday? Well, it just happened to be my belly button birthday. <laughs> so I raised my hand and they said, oh no, put your arm down, you know, that's okay. <laughs> anybody knew, raised my arm again, you know, you okay, go. good. And went to the meeting, don't remember a damn thing from the meeting except there's just some older guys and uh, and they said, uh, the guy running the meeting says, anything you want to say at the end of the meeting? And I said, I just can't stop drinking. It's probably the only honest thing I said in years. I just can't quit. And uh, they said, that's all right, you know. You're in the right spot. And I'll tell you what we want you to do. We want you to go to a meeting again, but before you go to your next meeting, don't drink in between. And I was like, 
Okay. I'll give it a shot. That was on September 29th. And uh, so I went home. And my roommate was smoking pot. And I, well, I'm not drinking. Smoked the pot. First thing I want to do is drink. And I knew right there that I was, I wouldn't be sober. And uh, so I didn't drink. I wanted to drink really bad. And then I went to my next meeting on the 1st. And uh, that's my birth date, October 1st, because I smoked, you know, so. How are you feeling at this point? You know, do you remember? Um, I don't even remember the meeting. Yeah. The next meeting. I think I went to a Thursday meeting. Thursday night, I went to a meeting. Yeah. It was a Thursday night meeting. It was at the bottom of a church, um, a Catholic church, because back then all the Catholic churches had meetings in them. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that there was a Catholic priest who was an alcoholic. Uh I can't remember his name right off the bat. You hear, you'll hear him. He's on, he's on uh, online. You can hear some of his talks, uh, Father something. Mm -hmm. uh, but anyway, yeah, it was a Catholic church, and uh, on a Thursday night, and that became my regular meeting, and that was my home group for years. It was my home group, and the guys in there. I just remember, I remember telling them, you know, that uh, this was. I, this was my first day there, you know, this was my, mm -hmm. I hadn't drank that day, Yeah. you know, I hadn't drank the day before, but I just felt that my first meeting was really my birthday meeting. That was my birthday meeting where I hadn't drank or smoked or anything. Mm -hmm. And since, you know, since that, since that point. Yeah. And I just felt like I was just totally depressed. I, I was totally depressed. <clears throat> my, uh. My first 30 days in the program were um, the selfish, depressed personality. And uh, I would, and they, they just kept telling me, just go to meetings, go to meetings, go to meetings, you know? And then it was just a safe place for me so that I didn't drink. And I would sit in the back of a meeting and cry. Just my, I was just devastated by the fact that alcohol had just, Devastated my life, you know, and, and uh, I didn't want to drink, but just the whole depression of the fact that this was my life, you know. <laughs> I think that's what a lot of alcoholics mm -hmm. think. They think, and this is what my life has become. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> they kind of wake up and it's like a wet rag in the face, you know. And they, it's the realization that their alcoholism has taken them down that far. You know, and, and a lot of, you see a lot of people in AA, same thing, they're depressed. They come in and they're depressed. And I can relate to that because I was very, very depressed at the time. And I would, uh, I couldn't even talk in meetings. You know, they'd, I, they'd say, do you want to talk? And I'd like, no. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't say anything, you know. I didn't even say I was an alcoholic. I just was so depressed. And finally I got to the point where my home group, um, because I, my home group that I was in, we would have a 12 by 12 meeting on the side because there was like 20 people, 25 people that would go to the meeting. And uh, they would have a first step meeting or they would have a 12 by 12 meeting. And you could stay in the first step because there was new people that were always coming in and. Uh, or you could go to the 12 by 12. So I went and hid in all these 12 by 12 meetings. And event, every week was a different step. So one week was step one, next week step two. And uh, I finally was, and I read, I was reading in the meetings because they, they would pass the book around and you would read a paragraph or something. And, uh, and then they would say, well, you want to comment after you read or We'd read the whole thing, and then we'd go around the room and comment. <clears throat> and I really didn't have anything to say about that either because my brain was like, I couldn't comprehend what was in these books. I was just safe being in the meeting and reading, and that was it for about the first 30 days. 
And then after that, the fog lifted and I started to understand what step one and two were really all about. Since I did have a home group and the mm -hmm. guys in the meeting were watching me, one of the guys said, well, we need a guy to make coffee and we want you to make coffee. And I said, are you sure? <laughs> <laughs> and there was this guy named, his name was Terry Grondon. I can say his last name now because he's passed away. Hmm. But uh, he was about five foot five and had these big Popeye arms. Literally, it looked like Pop, you know, Popeye's got those big biceps on his arms and stuff. And, uh, and he talked with a real low voice, gruffy. And uh, I want you to make coffee. <laughs> it's like, okay, Terry. Uh, what do I do? And he says, well, you get here about a half hour early next week. I said, all right. So I show up a half hour early. It's just me and him. And uh, he shows me how to make coffee, set the tables up with the chairs, put the ashtrays out, because back then you could smoke in meetings. And uh, remember, this is 1981, uh, where there was no secondhand smoke. <laughs> <laughs> so I, and then, you know, did all that stuff, and then he hands me a key to the church. And I thought, well, shit, Terry, this is bad news here. Are you giving me a key? <laughs> you know, you know I, I didn't say, Terry, you know that I stole money from a company I used to work for, mm -hmm. which I had when I was drinking because I needed money for drugs and alcohol. And so I broke into this company that I worked for and stole their cash box and used all that money. You know, I can talk about it now, but I couldn't say anything back then, 30 days sober, you know. Mm. I wasn't gonna tell you shit about me, not yet. You know, I didn't know who these people were. So, I come the next week, I got the key, right? I show up half hour early. And uh, I get in the church, make the coffee, set the chairs up and everything, got plenty of time. So I wandered through the church, like any good thief does. <laughs> <laughs> but there was nothing to take. What am I going to steal from a church? You know, a Catholic church. What am I going to take? <laughs> I got the master key, but there's, and I'm thinking about it, you know, it's like, what, what would I steal in here anyway? Mm -hmm. You know, and so that became a, a real base for me just to make, go make coffee you know, and uh, it grounded me in with the with the meeting, and the, which was good for me. And then, also with making the coffee, Terry said, you know, if you get to a point where you just need to hang out, come on over to my house. And uh, so he was my temporary sponsor. I'd go over to his place, and uh, first time I go over there, and he's he's a body and fender guy, and he's got a garage in the back of his house where he works on people's cars, right? When they banged up fenders and all that. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I call him up one day and I go over there and, and uh, he's working on something. And I'm looking around his backyard and watching him work. And I notice over on the fence, there's a bottle. So I walk over there, you know, and here's a half a fifth of whiskey and uh, Terry had five years at the time, which I thought was like massive. Um, and I said, what's that bottle for, Terry? And he goes, well, if you think you need to drink, it's over there. And I said, well, I didn't come over here to drink, Terry. Well, you never know, you know, some people get the shakes, you know, they want to drink. If you want to drink, drink. If you don't want to drink, don't drink. And so that was really my real first um, eye-opening, if you might say, about other alcoholics in the program. You know, their attitude towards your drinking was, if you want to drink, go ahead and drink. No one's going to stop you. It's a choice that you got to make yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and, and Terry was, he didn't say it like that, but it was more like I had to th really think about it, right? Because I was sober a month or so, a little over a month at the time. And 
Um, and then I met other people in the program too. Like we'd go to a, I got asked to go to an AA picnic. I think I was sober like 60 days. And we go to this picnic. No, it wasn't even that. It was like a month. It was about, a, about the same time. We go to this picnic and we're walking along and uh, from the parking lot down and, and I asked, I said something about, we were talking about not drinking. And uh, and somebody turned to me and said, oh yeah, you can drink anytime you want. <laughs> you know, I mm-hmm. said, well, no, I don't really have a choice. No, no, you do. You have a choice. You can drink anytime you want, you know. And the person that was saying that had, at the time, three or four years, you know. Mm-hmm. But it was it was just out front, right? And that's the part about AA, we don't see a lot of it in, in the meetings because you're not socializing outside of AA with people a lot of times. And I did at that time. I was, you know, we'd go to, after a meeting, you go down to, uh, you know, the coffee shop and people would hang out at the coffee shop, drink coffee and just talk about stuff or eat some pie or have a, you know, have a ice cream sundae or something after the meeting. Um, and I did that with a lot of people there. I hung out with them because I didn't know how to live. You know, I was living in the bars. So for me, the social part after the meeting was a big deal. Mm-hmm. It was a real big deal. And I wish we had that here. I wish we had, like, go down to the coffee shop and have a coffee with everybody after the meeting or something. You know, have a pie. Yeah. But we don't, you know, and... and uh that's why I think the some of the other activities that we have outside AA are pretty important sometimes. Hmm. So you're kind of getting into the groove of your sobriety now. Like you're making new friends and acquaintances. Like your pattern is changing in life. Is that true? Right, yeah. Um, yeah, because all I knew was drinking, you know. But, I, I drank... I drank mm-hmm when I was in high school and I kept drinking right up to the day I quit, mm-hmm. you know? And so all my friends and acquaintances were all in the bars and everybody that I drank with in the high school, there was only a few people and they were all gone too. Um, so I was pretty much a loner for years and years and years. And then, uh, I quit drinking and, uh, I had to kind of hang on to the tales of people in AA to figure out how to live. Do you remember getting your one-year chip? You know, I have I have all my chips. I have a uh, it's a wooden cup, a wooden drinking cup, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I have all my chips in there. And uh, I have a one, two, three, and a five. And uh, I remember getting my one and my two and my three and my five-year. I don't remember getting my fourth because I don't have it. I can't remember what happened to it. And my one-year chip and my big book, um, after I got, after I was sober a year and I got my chip, um, I was pretty cocky, you might say, right? And uh, and so I ended up getting married with somebody in the program, thinking, because they tell you in AA, you know, for the first year, don't get any serious relationships, mm-hmm. right? And so I waited a year, and then I got in a serious relationship, and ended up getting married. So it was like my two years, I, I got married at, at, at two years. Because the relationship went on anyway, <clears throat> and uh, and the reason why they say that is, it's an emotional roller coaster, right? When you get married, mm-hmm. it really is. Or any relationship is like an emotional roller coaster, and they always say, well, if you really want to know your sobriety is any any good, get in a relationship. <laughs> That'll really test your sobriety, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and it does. And I got married, and then. Got divorced. Oh, after that, 16 months later, I was divorced. And at the time, you know, I thought I had a pretty good base on sobriety. Um, 
but I had some friendships dissolve in AA. And they weren't based on my marriage. They were based on other things in the relationships. But um, after I got divorced, I realized that I had put this relationship in front of my relationship with God. And it was a very humbling experience. You know, I had married and I had a uh, son, and within a year we were divorced, you know, and, and uh, 16, I think it was 16 months. But it really tested my relationship uh, with, my, with God, right? And uh, my sponsor, because I had a real good sponsor then, I had, I'd got a sponsor after about three months, a Wally, and uh, Wally R. And he was this rough around the edges guy. And I didn't really, I didn't really see his path for me in sobriety. And so I fired him. And then I got another sponsor within about two months later, I got another sponsor who understood me because he was a carpenter like me. At the time I was a, a carpenter. And uh, he pretty much understood me right away. And he could tell me about, well, the little guy on your shoulder is saying, oh yeah, you should just go out and drink. And the other guy on your shoulder is going, no, don't do it. You know, <laughs> and he had this way of describing things to me about this, you know, this uh, real hard relationship that we have with our higher power. Because that, that whole concept of us, where we fit in this realm of life with our higher power is the test of our alcoholism, really, our alcoholic life. You know, we keep on drinking, we have no relationship. We stop drinking long enough to clear our heads and our minds and our bodies, and our spiritual life then comes out. And it's, it's uh, one of those things where you have to understand what you believe, really, really deeply believe. And until you do, you have this fight going on. Like he was saying, oh, go out and drink again. They don't give a shit in AA. <laughs> or, well, I don't know, you know, they treated you pretty good. Mm -hmm. And so you got that fight, that battle going on inside. And he knew how to, he knew how to help me with that. Mm -hmm. And he knew how to take my relationships and put those in, things into perspective to a spiritual life, right? He understood how to put my relationship with God first before all relationships, even the one I was having with him. You know, he used to say, why do you think I'm here? I go, well, I asked you to help me. He goes, no, I'm here because I sobered up and God wanted me here. You're here because you sobered up and oh, God put me here with you. You know, and he had this real cut dry you know if you don't have a relationship with God I don't have a relationship with you so one of the things he made me do was he made me write down my goals he says here's what I want you to do I want you to write down six things and I want you to write them down in the order that the most important things that you have uh, that you want in life and he said I'm going to tell you what the first thing is and will always be, and if it isn't, then you and I won't have a relationship. I said, all right, because I was willing to do anything. And uh, he said, put number one down right next to it, a relationship with God. Because if you don't have that, you don't have nothing. You might as well forget it. Go back out and drink, you know. And then everything comes after that. So I don't care what you put down, just write it down. And he goes, I don't want you to tell me what it is. I just want to make sure that you understand exactly what these goals are for yourself. Because I'd never had goals in my life. You know, I never wrote anything down. I was a carpenter. You know, I hammered and built things. I worked for a company that did acoustic ceilings, and I put acoustic ceilings in jails. Wow. <laughs> and... Uh, theaters and offices and airports and 
so that was kind of a, a big turning point for me with that when I with that I had the relationship with him was he was he could spit out evil or good and show me how it related to my life so then fast forward to a few years later or however long you want to fast forward maybe up to this point how how when was it that you started feeling like you have reached some serenity like you've lost the obsession okay let me rephrase the serenity that. oh my gosh can you tell me about when the obsession lifted for good or what what are your thoughts on that even that question you know have they lifted for good the obsession i still want to drink wow i still think that there's a possibility one day mm-hmm. <laughs> this is this is the alcoholic fantasy that everybody every alcoholic has this yeah i don't you know i don't deny it mhm do i have an obsession to pick up a beer and drink it no I think the desire to drink, um, the obsession part goes away, yeah. Mm -hmm. The desire to drink is the reason why we come to AA. Mm -hmm. You have this desire not to drink, right? So you come to AA, and then you learn how to live your life. The obsession part, it slowly goes away when you build a, when you start to have a relationship with God. That every day... I want to drink, or you need to curl up. I've seen people curled up in the corner mm -hmm. that have the obsession to drink that don't drink because, you know, they're in the corner crying and they want to drink so bad. They want their life to change so bad. And I think that when I realized that my life was changing and, and I didn't want it to change back to the drinking part, mm -hmm. that obsession was lifted. I was probably sober about six months, and I went to this young people's convention in Bellevue, Washington. And uh, I was doing, now it was about four months, and I was at step three, and I had, the, I had my sponsor, and uh, I, I was in a meeting, and somebody said, just go off, on your, go off by yourself, and uh, have a uh, earnest prayer with God. And uh, I kind of figured out what God was, you know, because I think that's what most alcoholics have to do too, is they have to figure out, well, what's God? If I'm going to believe in something, what am I going to believe? And so that part, I got that part. But then it was the whole, is God there? And uh, when that... And that was the question for my sobriety at the time. And I, anyway, I was at this convention, and I'd been to a meeting, and somebody said, go off and pray, you know, by yourself with God, and uh, and then you'll figure it out. And I'm like, well, what the hell, you know? If God isn't with me, I'm in trouble. Because everybody I've been hearing saying, if you don't have a relationship with your higher power, mm -hmm. you ain't going to make it. And I didn't want to... I just, well, if I didn't have a relationship with God, I was going to go out and drink. Mm -hmm. You know, I already knew that part. I didn't know the other side. Well, the other side was there was a relationship with God, which I never had, ever. So I went off, and I, that night I went off and prayed. And, um, I woke up the next morning, and I just felt that I was just surrounded by the spiritual power of God. And that God was with me, right there with me. And it changed me. It, it totally changed me. And after that, I just never had the desire to pick up a drink or smoke. What are things like today? <laughs> I know I rambled on way too much. Um, so fast forward, you know, and I went through my divorce and all that. And, and then I got remarried again to my current wife, Pam, and uh, we had three kids. And during all those years with my sons and raising them, um, uh, my relationship with God 
um, changed a little, and uh, you know, we, my wife was a member of the church, and so we started going to church and raised my kids in the church and taught them about God and uh, how they should believe that I, the way I believed, and um, by doing that, um, I didn't go to a lot of meetings for a long time. Um, I mean, I have a jar of chips, but there's a lot of blank years in there. I never got a chip. I just didn't go to a meeting. And I raised my kids in the church, and that was my spiritual, my spiritual life was with my family. And uh, there's a lot of people in AA, it's like, well, you never went, you, but you didn't drink. Well, that's because I had a relationship with God. And I think the most important thing is to have a relationship with God. And uh, raising your kids with God. You know, I ask them too these days, I said, you know, God loves you. And they go, oh yeah, Dad, we know. <laughs> and uh, I was like, well, did you get, remember you got baptized? Oh yeah, we got baptized. We know, Dad, with all this stuff. And it's like, well, God loves you. Yes, we know, Dad. You know? <laughs> because that's the way I raised them, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's what we did. We raised my family and then eventually I started, after they were growing up and left the house, I started going back to meetings. And, and I think at the time during that period too, I'd go to a meeting like once a year or something. Mm -hmm. And a birthday meeting, get my chip, you know, or mm -hmm. maybe a couple of years. But um, after they left, I started going to meetings again two or three times a week and uh, realized that, you know, I need to get back to the people there. Mm -hmm. And my wife and I have had discussions about this, you know, because how do you help people? And, you know, my heart goes out to a lot of people that are homeless, a lot of people that need help. Um, and so, so should I, you know, help go build houses or do this or that, you know? And, and she just looked at me and shook her head and no, you belong in AA, you know, those people in there need you, you know? And, and she goes, I've seen it too many times. You've helped so many people that, you know, what you're doing is what God wants you to do. So, and that's what I do today. You know, I, I go to meetings, I get more involved in the groups. Um, I try to push people certain ways for meetings. Um, I think you understand that where I ask them to do certain things mm -hmm. because I see that they're struggling a little <laughs> and in order for them not to struggle so much, they either need to do some kind of service or they mm -hmm. need to do, they need help from other people. And so I push people towards them mm -hmm. or I push things towards them so that they can see that their work in here is just as important. And uh, so that's my calling, basically. You know, my wife is like, no, you better go help people in AA because that's what you're supposed to do. I think she's right because you pushed me into service, you know. Yeah. I. The first time you did it, I wasn't like, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> but after a couple times, I was like, okay, I'll try, you know. <laughs> And off I went. Well, that, and I think I also like like what I'm, what I'm doing now is I'm I'm pushing people who have like a year or two, yeah, and I'm pushing them towards um, sponsoring people, mm -hmm. you know. And, and I think that uh, I see new people come in and they're they need a little help, mm -hmm. you know. They don't need my help; they need people their age to step up and help them mm -hmm. because when you, when somebody your age is helping you you relate more in AA, hmm. right? And that's why I tell new people, when you come in, talk to the other new people in here because those people are just like you. Mm -hmm. They understand, you know, and that's who, what I did when I hung out. I sobered up with four people who had the same month as me. And for years, I would go to the birthday meetings and they'd all be there for years and years and years, 20, 25 years. You know, I saw all of them in, in a birthday meeting. And so when you see those other people and you see them get chips, it's, it's motivation for you. Oh, they're sober. I can do that. Now, if you could give yourself a piece of advice, and we're talking year one, Keith, what <laughs> advice would you give year one, Keith? <clears throat> year one, Keith? Or day one. Early. 
early AA key. Early early sobriety key? Yeah, what kind of advice would you give them looking back? Boy, that's a pretty tough question. <laughs> looking back. <laughs> oh, I would have never got married the first time. <laughs> I think that was... It was a it was a mistake, but it wasn't a mistake mm -hmm. because I think that you have to experience everything sober. Yeah, you know, and and, and uh, uh, maybe I would have been a little more outgoing because I was a pretty much a very shy person in AA for a long time, and that's just my was my personality when I drank too. Mm -hmm. Because when you when you have people in AA, there's like two kinds of people that are in AA. There's the doormat, and there's a the guy that wipes their feet on the doormat. Hmm. There's these dominant people that come in, mm -hmm. and no matter what you say to them, they're always gonna be that force of a person. Mm -hmm. And they're gonna step on other people in AA, and you see it all the time. Hmm. If you stick around to the meetings and you watch afterwards, and before is where you see the interaction with people and you, under, you start to understand that their way or the doorway, you know, and, and uh, or you listen to their stories and you their stories are that way. They abused people mm -hmm. and there are the people that were abused in alcoholism, you know, and, and as somebody that was both, I was an abuser and I was abused. You know, so I was the middle of the road person. And I kept, when I got into AA, I didn't know whether I should listen or whether I should tell them to shut up. <laughs> All right. Now, bonus time here. Um, you don't have to share this if you don't want to. But I know you have a hilarious, well, I don't know if you can call it hilarious about your first marriage and you were waiting in the car. Oh, Would yeah, like I, I should tell you that. Do you right? want to? Awesome. I'll tell you about that. Okay. And I've told this in a meeting before. Um, so uh, I got married and I was, what, I got married in September. So not even two years sober. And uh um, the marriage didn't last long. Lasted, lasted six, oh, the marriage lasted like 16 months, and uh, um, I was going through the divorce part, and I was living at my sponsor's at the time, Al, my sponsor, Al. I'll tell you about Al. I want to tell you about Al, too. Um, so anyway, I was living with, at my sponsor, Al. He was out of town on a job. Um, he was a carpenter, remember, I told you. And anyway... Mm -hmm. So I was staying at his, he said, well, you just stay at my place. And, because we were split. And so I had this old uh, Dodge van and the steering box was kind of screwed up in it. And you had to kind of like turn the wheel a little extra to get it to turn one way or the other. There's a lot of play in there, right? And uh, I was driving that thing around I was staying at his place and he lived in this flat in Alki and it was a dump. And uh, the building looked like a dump, but his he had fixed up his little apartment in there. And he had a clawfoot bathtub. And I decided that uh, it was I, was, I was so depressed, you know, that uh, I found out that my wife had cheated on me. And uh, I was, she was, she was going to stay with her girlfriend and I was in the I was in the back bedroom of the house, and I found a receipt for an airplane ticket to Mexico. And then I looked at her bank, and she was taking care of the company bank account that I had at the time because I uh, formed a company and I was in my own company. I was bringing in about one hundred fifty thousand a year. This is like a year and a half sober, right? Two mm -hmm. years sober. Um, and <clears throat> I found this, and I'm like, what the hell is this? So, and then I get this call, and it's her girlfriend that she's supposed to go see. And she's like, she's asking for her. I'm like, well, 
she ain't there. Obviously, looks like she's in Mexico. And who could she be in Mexico with? Her boss. And uh, so I packed up all of her stuff and put it in a couple suitcases, changed the locks on the front door of the house because we had a house together, and uh, put her bags out front. So I knew when she was going to get home, she'd have to ring the doorbell. So she rings the doorbell, and she said, what's all this? I said, how's your trip to Mexico? I said, you better take your stuff because I found out you got a, you know, an apartment all furnished and everything. And because I went through all the receipts for the business and you spent all the money. Mm. There was no more money in the business. She'd spent it all. She'd had this love nest that she furnished with her boss. And so she left. Well, my wife was a paralegal. Mm. And so she leaves with her stuff. The next day she calls me and says, Give me the key to the house. Give me this. Give me that. You know, mm -hmm. I'm filing all this paperwork and all this stuff. And I said, fine. So I got kicked out, right? So here I am at my, uh, I'm driving this old beater van. And and I'm at my, you know, my, I'm at the apartment there, you know. And he's got a clawfoot tub. And I'm like, okay, fill the tub up. He's got a little, one of those little space heaters. I'm just going to off myself, right? Mm -hmm. So I fill the tub up, plug it in, sit next to the tub. I get in, and uh, I'm like thinking, why the hell should I kill myself? You know, I got this sanity comes back, right? Well, not really. It was like, well, I'll go kill her. <laughs> <laughs> so I get out of the tub <laughs> and get dressed. <laughs> I get in this old beater van and I drive it down to where she works and I park in the parking garage and uh, it's before she gets off work and I'm sitting out there I got this old Mexican 22 caliber pistol that was hers mm -hmm. <laughs> and I'm going to kill her and uh, so I sat out there and waited and waited and waited and waited and she never came out and uh I just thought, well, all the hell with it. I'll go get. I'll go to a meeting. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, and all those thoughts come up. You know, what mm -hmm. am I going to? If I kill her, then I'm in jail. And then my son has a murderer father, or killed his mother, and mm -hmm. you know, all I think that she stuff. She went out the back door. Yeah, and she went out. No, she went out. I was at the back door. Oh, she next went out the to the next to her car. I parked right oh. next to her car. Mm. But uh, she went out the front door with her with her. Uh, affair their boss mm, great story and that <laughs> and you didn't drink throughout this no i was totally sober see that's all that counts right <laughs> <laughs> total insanity you know yeah uh, that's all i'm thinking it's like but you didn't drink <laughs> well but there was some insanity there and like you said um a relationship will test your sobriety right oh yeah yeah oh yeah yep you know, and, and and then from from all that that whole relationship thing I had with her and all that stuff that I went through, mm -hmm. um, it changed me a lot. And people, I'd go to a meeting and people, well, you're different. Hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and I just kind of grew up a little more. You yeah. Know? And uh, realized my responsibility as a father to take care of my son, and uh, that never really happened because she took him and left left the state, so I never even got to raise him. But, uh, you know, it did change me. It changed me a lot. It changed my relationship with God, too. Hmm. And I realized that's when my sponsor said, you put her in front of your relationship with God, and so what is God going to do? He's going to take away everything that you have to show that the relationship with Him is all you really have in the end. Hmm. And I realized that. You know, I realized that he took everything. I lost my business. I lost my family. You know, I was out on the street. I didn't have a home anymore. You know, everything. I lost everything. 
just in the blink of an eye, just within, you know, a week. Mm-hmm. I lost everything. I lost my relationship with my son and my wife and my business and all I had left was my relationship with God. Wow. And so later on, when I went through hardships with my current family, um, I got I had shoulder surgery three times on my uh, shoulder, and I went through all these surgeries and everything, and I was I couldn't work, and uh, we were going to the food bank to pay for the, well to eat, and my wife's income was paying for the rent and the electricity and the phone at the time, and. Uh, we just didn't have enough food in the house, so I was forced to go to the food bank. But in the through the whole thing, I always, you know, I knew God was taking care of us. It was just one of those things where my relationship with God was always first, and my family was always taken care of. God took care of my family, you know, when I couldn't. Thank you, Keith, for joining us on the Recovery Edge Cast. And thank you listeners for checking us out again. Remember, you can find us on Spotify, iTunes, also iHeartRadio, and wherever you like to check out your podcasts. And of course, at recoveryedgecast.com. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.